Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos HSI familia and welcome back to Que Pasa HSIs. Each season I aim to have balance between HSI researchers and practitioners, acknowledging that we learn from both. My hope is that with each platica we co-create knowledge that is both empirical and practical. I have enjoyed learning alongside so many different people working with and for HSIs and hope you do too. In today's episode, I talked to Dr. Cynthia D. Villarreal, who is an assistant professor at Northern Arizona University in the Educational Leadership Program. She is a fronteriza studying the borderlands of HSIs and higher education, organizational culture, equity and decision-making, and Chicana feminisms in higher education. As a creative nonfiction writer, she believes in the importance of sharing counter-testimonials to critique and transform higher education. She uses interdisciplinary theories and research to inform her approach to the study of HSIs from Chicana feminist theories to Black feminist theory to critical consciousness and critical race theory. Her latest research explores faculty hiring experiences at two HSIs in different geographical contexts. These case studies led to the creation of a framework for what she termed HSI consciousness. In her framework, she explains that servingness must be embedded within institutional structures as well as embodied at an individual level of consciousness. She holds a PhD in urban education policy from Rossier School of Education at the University of Southern California, a master's of education from the University of Texas at San Antonio, and a bachelor's of arts from Texas Tech University, where she double majored in English and anthropology. She has over 15 years of experience working at HSIs in many different capacities. Originally from El Paso, Texas, she currently lives in Phoenix, Arizona with her husband and two daughters. Side note, when we recorded this episode, she was eight months pregnant with baby girl, numero dos, who, was, who has since arrived into the world. On a personal note, I met Cynthia when she was a doctoral student at USC, and I was a Ford postdoctoral scholar. I had the opportunity to meet with doctoral students, and she and two other women were eager to talk to me about being a mother scholar, among many other topics that were weighing heavily on their hearts as women of color doctoral students. She has since become a mother scholar herself and is rocking the HSI world with her Chicana feminist Fronteriza lens. And I'm so happy to be one of her scholar madrinas supporting, supporting her on this journey. I hope you will enjoy this episode of Que Pasa HSIs. All righty, let's get started with today's episode. Doctora Villarreal, thank you for taking the time to be here today on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. But before we talk about what's up with HSIs, we like to talk about you. So tell us a little bit um, about your higher education journey. Yeah. So I want to say that it's first really important for me to mention, if you don't already know, that I was born and raised in El Paso, Texas. And the reason why that's important for me to mention is because it serves as the foundation for how I saw education, higher education throughout my childhood. And then later on, it sort of became like the standard to which I held all my educational experiences up against, like once I left. Um, so for example, I grew up with everyone around me 
like looking like me, speaking like me, having Spanish last names, and those last names were always pronounced correctly, right? Um, and it was just like this space and this upbringing that was safe. There was a lot of family and cultura. And so I say all of that because El Paso is really a special place. And you could say that my K through 12 experiences were at Hispanic serving institutions, but like K through 12 institutions. Um, and so all the teachers and all the students were mostly Mexican American. And because of that, I would say that I was very blessed growing up in that space and I had a lot of support. So as a result, I was pretty high achieving um, and I had a lot of guidance from teachers and counselors to, to be successful. And, and it was no question that I would go to college because of all the support that I had. Um, I was placed on that kind of college going path from a very early age. And one thing that was communicated to me often was that I needed to leave in order to be successful. Like you need to leave El Paso, go get your education, and then you can come back and um, do whatever you want to do here. So I really like took that to heart and I did, but I did it in a very like, like probably not the best way <laughs> because there was like, there was support and encouragement, but not so much like the guidance on how to do it. So I applied to one school and it was one school that I told, I was told was good. I had never visited. I had never, I didn't know anyone who attended that college. Um, and I don't know what made it good. I just know it had that reputation of being a good school. So I applied to that school, got a full scholarship and went there. And it was a elite, private, religious, predominantly white institution in Texas. Um, and it was, it was a culture shock. For the first time, I failed classes, right? Like, I, I it was a struggle. I was homesick. I was depressed. Um, and I had my parents support and they would say like, well, come home. If, if you're not happy, come home. But not realizing that I felt that it would be letting down an entire like community of people that helped me get to this point if I came home. So um, eventually I did. And I, it was, I, I was scared to think that I was going to be judged. But at that point I was just like, I can't take this anymore. It was just so different from my upbringing and I wasn't I wasn't supported and I didn't feel like I had the support to do well so I left and I got a job back in El Paso I started attending UTEP and I actually loved it like I I was terrified of being judged for coming back but I was really embraced coming back and I felt at home, like even on campus, um, I felt seen, I felt represented. And I just, like I said, that I felt embraced by my community once again. And as a result of that, I started doing well, you know, like I made Dean's List. Uh, I became a, a peer, a peer leader and just um, kind of like an undergraduate teaching assistant. Um, and so I just, I started doing really well. And 
after a year and a half of being at UTEP. Um, and I'll share more about like my my UTEP experience, but I transferred again. And I <laughs> I always like feel funny saying that I transferred again because why would I transfer if things were going so well? But I think I also had this something to prove <laughs> that like, I could I could go somewhere and still be successful, um, even though the first time it was a struggle. So um, I transferred and I went to Texas Tech and uh, I had visited Texas Tech in high school. So that was I was like, all right, I, I think I know what I'm doing now. And when I was at Texas Tech, I needed to work and I was a work study student. So. I took a lot of different campus jobs. I worked in the library, I worked in disability services, I worked for the school newspaper. And then I did something that I didn't, I had no idea what it was, but I did undergraduate research because it gave me a scholarship. So it was like, I'm gonna do this because it's kind of like a job, but it's like a nerdy job. So um, it was just a way to make money, to be honest. But um, all of these experiences were really foundational to my higher ed journey. And it's a lot of times what I draw upon when I think about how I came to be in higher education. It was like all the chaos at the beginning, the finding myself again at an HSI, and then through these jobs, uh, through work study. And so um, it was kind of cool when I was working in the library, I learned a little bit about research and how like faculty and PhD students conducted research because this was back when like people would go and check out stacks of books <laughs> um, and <laughs> or request books through interlibrary loan and like I had to process all of that. So it was like I was starting to see what it could be like to to do research, but I, I still never saw myself doing that. Um, and I would say another like really formative experience was when I was writing for the school newspaper at Texas Tech. Um, I learned about governance and the Board of Regents, like what the Board of Regents actually did, because I would have to attend their meetings and report on the Board of Regents. And so um, it was, it was illuminating for me, but still, I never saw myself in like governance or administration. Um, what I did sort of identify with, and maybe it was because the director of the undergraduate research center was Latina, but I was like, I would like to do that and become like a McNair director or become a director of undergraduate research. Um, but I, I guess I didn't know how to go about doing that. Um, so I pivoted slightly and I taught uh, sixth grade English for a few years in San Antonio. Um, but after that, I knew I wanted to, to go back to higher ed. Uh, I knew that I wanted to potentially be a director of McNair. So I went to the uh, University of Texas, San Antonio, and I worked at McNair as a graduate assistant. And I loved it. Um, I did my master's there in ed leadership and policy studies. Um, I worked at McNair and TRIO, and then I also worked as a graduate assistant in the Ed Leadership Department, where I was supervised by Laura Rendon and Mark Giles. And so in that space, I was very supported and nurtured, and 
uh, mentored to apply for PhD programs. And I was starting to like put all the pieces together of like what an HSI was and the importance of it. Like I had, I had known, but I just didn't have the language, I think. Um, and at the same time, in my master's program, I had to do an internship for um, for the program, and my internship was in strategic planning and assessment for the vice president of student affairs. And that one was also really impactful in the sense that I got to see what strategic planning entailed and how students like me were considered in those conversations around strategic planning or maybe not not really discussed. Um, so all of this was like informing my thoughts when I was applying to PhD programs. Um, and when I went to USC for my PhD, um, I was really fortunate to work at the Center for Urban Education with Estella Ben-Simon and Lindsay Malcolm Picou. Um, cause they had done some work around HSIs and, but it was mostly connected through like their racial equity work. Uh, and so I feel like that, that experience, like the bookend of my journey in higher ed, um, was really when I started to see all the pieces fitting between like HSIs and equity and racialization and organizations. And like, really that's, that's where I'm at now is like, my scholarship is, you know, aligned with those, those pieces. Absolutely. Okay. Every time I hear people's journeys that I think I know them, I always rem like, I'm reminded that when I met you, <laughs> you were already at USC, right? I didn't necessarily know right. like all those, uh, all the other pieces of your journey and your journey is what a lot of people's journey is, which it's not linear. Right. We want college students to have this like linear experience. And it's like, you know, you you start here, you stop out, you end up there and you still wind up, you know, doing the things that you're you're going to do. So I do love love the um the journey question. Um, also, we're going to elevating El Paso um, this season because uh, Dr. Paloma Vargas will also be in season two with you, who I don't know if you know her, but she's the president of Alliance of HSI Educators. Um, and she also elevates um, El Paso. So we'll be we'll be okay. lifting El Paso in this in this season, um, which is so cool because you both have said the same thing, like you started with like let me say I'm from El Paso, <laughs> right? Like <laughs> how, how formative that is, right? And how important that is, right? Um, and it, it does, and it informs, you know, your your border consciousness, which I definitely want you to talk about um, a little bit more. Um, and also you started kind of getting into this, right? Your, your HSI consciousness, um, which is a concept I, I love that you're theorizing, right? It's like, what, how, what is the, the path to conocimiento, right? Around HSI, right? HSI conocimiento. Um, so talk to us a little bit more specifically about that. Like, when did you, you were in HSIs, you were also in PWIs, which is interesting that you didn't have that great of an experience, right? We know that that's the case. Um, but when did you actually know, like, what the what the name is? Like, was it in a formal educational setting when you actually start to, to, to come to consciousness about what an HSI actually is? Yeah, um, I didn't have that language, to be honest, until my master's program at UTSA. And I think a lot of it was probably due to the fact that at the time when I was getting my master's, um, Anne-Marie Nunez was there, Laura Rendon was there, uh, Mauri Nora. And so like there were 
these scholars that were talking about HSI and I it just like clicked for me like oh I know what that is uh and so when I talk about like my journey through higher ed it's really difficult for me to untangle like the HSI piece because it's always been there I just didn't have the words you know the language to put to it um like I I didn't know that I was at an HSI when I was at UTEP but I knew that I felt home. I knew that, you know, my culture was represented. I knew that I could speak Spanglish and not be judged and other people would understand me, which, you know, those aren't the only things that it takes to be an HSI, but those were parts for me that signaled like this is a different space. Um, And then one like thing that came into my consciousness much, much later and it wasn't until I was at USC where I was doing work with faculty was the presence of like Chicana faculty when I was at UTEP um, because that was like the first time that I had, I had heard the term Chicana. I took a class called La Chicana. You know, I took a Chicano studies and film class at UTEP and um, it was just like this awakening for me and I, I was able to bring my whole self to that space. Um, I was a communications major for a while. And well, I, as I mentioned, I wrote for the paper at Texas Tech. But when I was at UTEP, um, I just thought it was so cool that I could write stories on like the impact that the border wall was going to have on farming. And it it was like valued. It, they wanted that story to be told. Um, I know that that wouldn't be the case if I were going to another institution. Uh, so that's why I think I was able to have such a wonderful experience at UTEP, even though you like like every institution, it has its own challenges and issues. But I, I can really say that my experiences were valued when I was there. And I wasn't seen as like at risk of dropping out or... Um, because I didn't fit a particular mold. I, I was, yeah, I was, I was just able to be myself and um, the role that the faculty played in my ability to feel that way was really a big piece of it that I didn't connect until much, much later. Absolutely. Yeah. Having the language is important. And to hear you say that, like, um, name faculty who, like, brought HSI into your consciousness, it, like, warms my heart because I think about how our role, you know, we now play that role in our higher ed programs, right, as faculty doing this work and bringing that to um, to students' consciousness, right, that, like, HSI is a thing. And if we're not talking about it in our higher ed programs, then, you know, then no one's going to be talking about it. Um, and you're not the first person to say that. Actually, Aaron Doran in season one also said, oh, I learned about HSI at UTSA from the same, you know, faculty you're, you're naming, like how important it is for, for us to be, you know, elevating uh, HSIs and having these conversations, critical conversations too, right, with, with students. Right. So, and Erin mm-hmm. and I were there at the same time when I was getting my master's, she was getting her doctorate. So we definitely crossed paths there. And I, I got to see scholarship that the doctoral students were working on mm-hmm. around HSIs. And that, that was also motivation for me. I just want to say. 
Yeah. All right. Shout out to Dr. Aaron Doran, who's amazing and doing some awesome work. And from Um, El Paso. And from El Paso. See, I'm telling you, we're elevating El Paso this this season. (laughs) I I always tell y'all, my mom's from El Paso. So I got that. That connection too. I've never visited actually. I keep telling her like, cause she never, she doesn't ever go back. Right. She moved to California when she was um, a teenager and just never went back. Um, so I got to visit. I'm going to have to visit. So I can feel the feel of power, right. Um, of even where my mom's from. Cause I know lots of stories of El Paso mm-hmm. from my mom, but never actually have, have visited. So one thing you talk about is border consciousness. So how is your border consciousness connected to these experiences of like growing up, um, you know, in El Paso um, and also these like higher ed experiences? Yeah. So um, like I said, all of, all of my, I measure almost all of my experiences to my upbringing on the border. Right. And for me, my upbringing was just like, ordinary like it was just very simple somewhat sheltered um because El Paso is a safe place and so and even though it's safe that's not what is portrayed in the in the media right um it's always when I say that I'm from El Paso like people sometimes will say oh how is that (laughs) you know because they've only heard the the war that's happening across the border, whatever terminology um, is part of the rhetoric at that time. But um, I just, I grew up, like I said, very sheltered in a way, very blessed though. And then when I left and I saw the inequities around how other people perceived us on the border, then it just became like this little passion project of mine to showcase and highlight any time that I had the opportunity, like the good things, the, but also what I call like the ordinary things of the border. And so um, there, my border consciousness is also in reference to like my Instagram page. And I just take pictures of what I find is beautiful from the border. And I, I just like, it's my sort of dedication to El Paso. Um, but it's also, it, there's also consciousness to it. There's also like some criticality in terms of like talking about the transfronterizo experience, um, which I didn't experience because I was born on the American side. But, you know, I grew up with a lot of friends, a lot of family that cross the border every day to go to work or to go to school. So it's, it's, showing the tension that exists at the border with like the very ordinary and like beautiful and safe aspect of growing up, but then also the struggles of that transnational and like bicultural experience. So I I try to do this in my research. I try to do this just like in conversation is to help people understand the nuances and the complexities of what it was like, but while not leading with the negative, the violence, the, that so often people's minds just go to. Absolutely. I know we're going to get into your research and I hope that one of your research agenda items is that you're going to theorize HSIs on the border. We need that, right? I think that is an important concept that there are a lot of uh, HSIs on the border that I think 
the ones I've had experience in and working with, um, it's just, it's just the, it's just what it is, right? We just are on the border without thinking that's actually a really unique identity um, for HSIs, right? If we start to think about all the different ways HSIs are distinct, because um, there's 559, they're not all the same. Um, but the border ones, I hope you're gonna, you're gonna theorize that one soon. We'll talk about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That that's on the horizon. Hopefully, um, I didn't realize until working on my dissertation that I wanted to do like an ethnography of HSIs on the border or something. Mm. So I still have that <laughs> aspiration someday, um, because what what I do try to do in my work is talk about the borderlands of higher education, and that being the geographic borderlands, but also like the symbolic borderlands that exist. So um, trying to do some of that with my research agenda. Yeah, for sure. I love it. I will be here for it. It needs to happen. And I'm also one of those researchers who knows that like my limitations, right? I'm like, that's not my area to, to you know, it's not my experience. Um, and I'm not going to be the one to to do that theorizing. So I, it's it's got to come from 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 a scholar like you, right? Who it is at in your heart. Um, so I'm going to look forward to that, that, that theorizing about of that <laughs> exercise in that way. So let's talk about your identity as a Fronterista scholar studying the borderlands of higher ed, HSIs, organizational culture, equity and decision-making, and Chicano feminisms in higher ed. In your research, uh, you're currently exploring faculty hiring experiences at HSIs and uh, thinking about this idea of HSI consciousness, right? And, and these processes, uh, organizational processes, right, that go on at HSIs. So tell us a little bit more about your dissertation work and why you focus specifically on, on faculty hiring practices at HSIs. Yeah, I love this question. Um, <laughs> so I was really interested in culture and organizational culture. Um, I would even say now that I'm like articulating this, even before my PhD, I was um, an anthropology major in undergrad. And so like talking about culture, that's always been something that I've just, I've been drawn to. And so when I did get to the PhD, I started doing work around organizational culture when I was at the Center for Urban Education or Q for short. And because I had used org culture in previous research at Q, I was familiar with the concepts, uh, but really in furthering my scope of org culture and leaning on the work of Edgar Schein, I was drawn to one aspect of org culture, which is the part about cultural transmission and how an organizational culture gets transmitted across a university or an organization by leaders within the org. So what I came to learn was that one of the ways leaders transmit culture is through hiring and firing. Um, the criteria that is set for membership, uh, who is allowed to become a member of an organization. And so when I read that, I just, I don't know, I couldn't get enough of it because it helped me understand um, some experiences that I had previously when I was working at Q, um, there was a faculty member that we were working with at a community college in California. And just in one of our evidence team meetings, she, uh, I think she taught biology. She said she didn't 
realized that her campus was an HSI. And it was just like that, like it was a comment in passing. No one said anything. But for me, someone who was interested in HSIs, I was like, well, that's a problem. You know, if the faculty don't know that they're at an HSI and what it means to be at an HSI and like there are implications for the students that are supposed to be being served. Right. So when I started going into the literature around hiring and firing, I was like, ah, okay, then that that interaction makes sense because it helped me understand like that the criteria at that campus for hiring faculty, it didn't include the HSI designation or identity in any way. Um, and like, and then starting to think about why is that? And what would it look like if it started to, if the criteria for hiring new faculty started to have this like consciousness of the HSI identity? Um, so I, I put that experience and the literature that I was reading in conversation with my experience at UTEP and just like the fact that I had so many, you know, relative, but like I had so many Chicana faculty members um, and I was thinking like, well, what was the difference? You know, like, why was it that at a place like UTEP, there were faculty that looked like me, that spoke like me, that shared experiences with me, but at this other HSI, um, they didn't even know that they were at an HSI. And so I was just interested in it from like a leadership perspective, like, and the policy perspective, what were the messages that were being shared around who is a legitimate member of the institution, like who should be hired to work here. Um, and so with all of that, I would say it helped me like not be so quick to to judge HSIs or faculty at HSIs because these are messages that become normalized over time. They're you know, we're socialized when we go through grad programs to value certain things. So it makes sense that when faculty are hired at HSIs, they're looking for folks that also value certain things like research, like teaching. Um, and so it, again, it just opened my mind to like, what, what type of consciousness or what awareness are at universities when they're hiring? Because I, I know that who is hired sends a much larger message about what is valued at the university. Um, and so, uh, yeah, that was just, that was all going on in my, in my mind when I was thinking about my dissertation uh, and the way that I could theorize or think of this idea of HSI consciousness, like really started to come into, into play just looking by looking at hiring and cultural transmission across an organization. Yes, absolutely. And faculty hiring right now is such a big conversation, right? It, within the HSI yeah. world, because exactly like you said, right? Like it, it can change the entire culture of what it feels like for students, for people, for other faculty, for staff. Um, so it is, it's such an important um, concept that you're exploring. 
And your article, Serving This in the Borderlands, a study of faculty hiring at Hispanic Serving Institution on the Border, published in AERA Open, you dig into the characteristics that faculty hiring chairs at HSIs look for um, in characteristics of new faculty hires. Tell us about the article and what you found. Yeah, so I just want to say first that this article was just one case from my dissertation. Um, and future work is going to showcase, you know, some of the differences between the two cases. But this one is what I refer to as border HSI or BHSI. And what I found was that faculty search chairs at BHSI were really looking for aspects in faculty candidates that aligned with their HSI identity. They wanted individuals who were committed to serve included the border, but also included uh, uh, other cities further away because this one campus was like the only institution for a, a large radius uh, of like the county and everything. So um, it was like really ingrained into their identity as an institution, but also like part of their just work that they took up to have like embodied uh, this emphasis of what it meant to serve a region and give back to a community. And that was their language. Okay. Like I know we talk about serving and servingness and those are terms that we use as HSI uh, researchers, but that was coming from them uh, serving the region. And so they wanted to hire faculty that were about that serving the region they and I would just say like this really stood out to me because in all the hiring literature that I've read I don't recall really ever seeing an institution that was concerned with serving like beyond the campus and like beyond the students um, but when I would talk to them about what serving the region meant, they always talked about like the binational context. They talked about like the, the multiple cities within the region um, that were also represented in, in who they were serving. So they they knew the importance of like not just focusing on the campus, but like the whole border, borderland. Um, and so the language of serving the region was like this powerful statement and demonstrated the university's commitment to like beyond campus. Um, and that was something that they looked for. That was one of the first things that they looked for when hiring new faculty. Another thing that came up was that search chairs wanted someone who was going to really prioritize mentoring of Latina students. And this was across the board, across disciplines, because I was talking to faculty that were in STEM, in social sciences, in humanities, and they all emphasized the importance of mentoring. And one participant said, like, it wasn't enough for them to just write about mentoring in their cover letter or in like their diversity statement, but that he would ask finalists in their interviews, like in their campus interviews, about how they mentored. And then he would look for things that can't be captured in, in a cover letter. Like he would look to see if their 
face lit up when they talked about mentoring students or if they discussed it as like a challenge to their productivity. Um, so I thought that was interesting because he was like concerned with the emotion behind it when he was talking to faculty or to finalists. Um, another faculty member described wanting finalists that were going to mentor in a way that engaged with the community. So sort of like weaving that aspect of the commitment to serving the region with the priority on mentoring. Um, that was something that was really important to her and, and she was in the humanities. Uh, the third finding was that faculty search chairs wanted to hire new faculty that not only understood the experiences, the intersectional experiences of Latina students, but that actually valued the, those experiences. And so because of my um, HSI experience, like that really connected with me, right? Um, so this came up a lot in with regards to like the border region and in particular this like bicultural, binational uh, existence. So like the students that cross the border to attend classes or the students who spoke Spanish as their first language, who commuted from all over the region, who were first gen. Um, it was important that new hires understood this reality, but also beyond that, like they wanted those things to be seen as assets uh, in the classroom and on campus. They wanted faculty, they wanted to hire new faculty that were going to see that as value to be brought into the classroom and value to be brought to the campus. So uh, for me, I always try to highlight that finding if I'm talking to people because it communicates not only this like understanding and this empathy of the experiences of students from the region, but like going beyond that and seeing it as a valuable contribution to the campus, to the culture, and, and to like learning in the classroom. So it adds like this dimension to mentoring and serving that I don't know that we always talk about um, when we think about the role that faculty play. Yes, I love all of that. Like when I read the article and listening to you, I immediately think of like the rubrics, right, that people use in faculty hiring, right? right? Like, and I like, do people have that on there, right? Like is mentoring on there when you're at an HSI, that is important, right? That you want to mentor Latine first generation college students, right? That are possibly bilingual, bicultural. Um, yeah, that's such an important piece, but it's not, it doesn't always show up in that, in the rubric, right? It's like right. the research, the teaching, the service, right? Mentoring doesn't necessarily show up, but what an important aspect, right? For, for HSIs and the idea of serving the region. I think it's so important. And I don't think HSIs think about that enough. And your study just really shows like for a region, an HSI that's in a region that is committed to that region, how, how much it's a part of their identity. So yeah. love it. I love, love reading the article. Um, this like end of the article, you then go into this idea of this, uh, HSI consciousness, right. Or this path to conocimiento, um, 
which I feel like it took me in a different direction. Like I wanted a whole book on that or something, right? I was like, ooh, <laughs> this is something all to itself, right? A whole nother concept um, that I think you're probably going to keep writing about. So tell us a little bit about that, that idea of like, that like people go on this path to understanding um, what HSI and servingness are. Yeah. So I will say that when I first started talking about my dissertation, um, with folks at Q, so like Estella Benzimon and Lindsay Makapiku, uh, I was thinking about HSI, HSI consciousness as being like on a spectrum or like some sort of typology. So institutions might land on a spectrum between being like ambivalent of their HSI identity and then being conscious. And um, when I spoke to faculty members, I found out that it really wasn't that simple. And because I was using org culture, but I was also bringing in Chicana feminist theory and, and theory around borderlands, I, it made me sort of push against what I was doing, which was like creating a duality, uh, this Western duality between conscious and not conscious of the HSI uh, designation. And so this is kind of where even like my border consciousness comes into play because it reminded me to embrace the in-between, to embrace the liminal spaces. So consciousness wasn't just like on and off, but it was something that was both and, right? And I, I don't talk about that in this article, but I do talk about it in my dissertation, how it was something that is embedded in the structures, but it's also embodied within the culture. And so um, when I started writing this paper, I was really grateful because the editors <laughs> pushed me to go deeper with the path to conocimiento. Like it was, it was there, but it was very minimal the way that I was writing about it. So yeah, I really appreciate you and Dr. Cuellar pushing me um, because the concept of path to conocimiento from comes from Gloria Anzaldúa and it's describing this path that an individual would take to achieve this awakened consciousness um and this awakened consciousness or this conocimiento is one that is critical it is feminist it is um activist and transformative and liberatory and all the things but it takes like seven stages to get to that point and so I started thinking about how we can use that stage, seven stage framework to conocimiento to think about a path towards a more heightened HSI consciousness on campus. Um, so I think also because of my work at Q around building equity mindedness, uh, I was using some of that knowledge that I had gained through working with Q for four years on organizational learning where we would talk about like, how can we help leaders become more equity minded? And I was just thinking, how can we help leaders become more HSI conscious or like have this awakened, elevated HSI conscious? And so the path to conocimiento just like really helped put some language to it, um, but in a way that was critical, feminist, um, and aligned with my border, border consciousness. Um, and I think you and I have talked about this before, but like one thing that comes up a lot 
with, I'm sure with you for sure, but it also has come up with me is I'll hear faculty say like, okay, this is great, but like, how do I do it? How do I get there? Or how do I become more conscious? And I think looking at this path to conocimiento because it has stages can help us start to think about how we get there, right? That it's not just like a band-aid solution to here's how you serve. All of a sudden you're, you're conscious now. Yay. Congrats. Um, but like to show that it's a slow shift to transform an organizational culture when you want to be more intent on serving or you want to be more equity minded, or you want to be more critical, more feminist. And it's, it's like an everyday thing that you build upon and it's not just a once in a while kind of thing. Yes. Thank you for saying more and sharing more. Everybody listening, you heard it here because this theorizing is coming. I know we're going to see some more articles about it. Um, But what I love about it is that it does align with a lot of my thinking around this idea of becoming, right? The becoming process, right? Right. Even like the book is called Becoming HSI, right? Um, That it, yeah. And you say like, you don't just you know, one day you are, one day you're not. Um, but the reality is with HSI, that kind of is the case, right? Like yes. they apply, <laughs> you apply, you get the designation and like, now you're an HSI. And it's like, no, that that's not the duality, right? You, you use the term duality, that it's much more complex than, than that. So in a technical term, yes, you apply, you become an HSI, boom, you're an HSI. Mm-hmm. Um, but what you're describing is that that process, that path, that becoming is so much more. There's so much more to it. So I look forward. I feel like we're mapping out all of your 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 research <laughs> projects right here. Um, and I'm so excited. I love I love, you know, getting to read research that's going on uh, with HSI. So so, yeah, I'll, I'm tuned in and hopefully our, all of our less listeners are going to be tuning in as you as you continue working on on these really cool concepts. Um, your Chicana feminist. Feminism also co- comes through really powerful, powerfully. Um, so yeah, it's it's good stuff. Let's talk a little bit about your book review. So I know you did a book review of Hispanic serving institutions in practice, uh, defining serviness at HSIs. Um, and I know we were on a on another podcast together, uh, which was fun, and we were discussing the book. And I was honored that you that you reviewed the book. Um, so it was, it was really cool to get to to be in conversation with you. Um, but for those of you that didn't for people listening that didn't hear about it. Talk to us a little bit about um, the book and how it informed your ideas about serving this. Cause I think you wrote it while you were in the dissertating, right? You were still yeah. in the process. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about that, about the review and, and how it informed your thinking around serving this. Yeah. Well, first of all, that podcast and all the publicity around the book was like something I had never experienced, but it was so cool. So shout out to Teachers College Record because they it was just amazing all the attention that like my book review was even given. And I didn't even write the book. I was like, no, <laughs> give the attention to to you and the contributors. It was, good. But- it was awesome. They were. They were really good. <laughs> it <They> was cool. <laughs> Um, but no, I'm glad that I was asked to review that book in particular because uh, I honestly loved it. I loved the the stories that were told with every chapter were like these implementation stories from practitioners themselves. And it was it was so powerful to get to hear from those working directly on HSI grants and HSI initiatives because we often don't hear those stories, right? Like, and if we do 
get a peer-reviewed article that tells about those experiences it's usually through the eyes of a researcher and not that that's bad but like just hearing from from what they were doing specifically and how they were thinking about implementation or even applying for grants like that was just really cool um it served for me it served as like this important reminder to step back and think about how how we talk about servingness and needs to be more inclusive of those voices as well. Um, and as a researcher, like I know that I have experiences in my past being a student, a grad student, an employee at HSIs, and now a faculty member at an HSI. But I think it's easy to lose sight of that sort of like on the ground work. Um, and it was just, it was just refreshing for me to come back to my research and be reminded of like this is the the day to day work that sometimes isn't isn't shared isn't told but is still very valid and should should be highlighted when we're talking about um, servingness. I will say though, when I was this came somewhat later, but I, I know I've shared this with you. I appreciate how the stories that are told around servingness and research do focus on a lot of times like leaders, administrators, practitioners, but it also reminded me like we need to be critical just as much of like what faculty are doing um, because a lot of times I don't think faculty are part of these conversations around servingness. They're they're seen as like separate because HSI is sometimes seen as an administrator driven endeavor or like a student affairs endeavor. And that because of academic freedom and like a bunch of other pieces, we sort of let faculty sometimes not fully engage with servingness. And I don't want that to be the case with my work. I'm like, no, faculty are an important piece of serving this because students spend so much time with them in the classrooms. Let's be more conscious of who we're putting in front of students in the classroom and, and how we're hiring them. And then also the role that they play in terms of decision-making that affects students on campus, like their, their leadership is important to consider as well. So it, all of that was going through my mind um, because of this book. So thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I really like that book too, for the same, a lot of the same reasons. Um, and I always say things like, I like that book. And it's not just because I was the editor, but it's because <laughs> I didn't, I didn't write the majority of it. Right. Like, as you know, cause you reviewed it, I only wrote one chapter. I mean, obviously I spent a lot of time helping to get those chapters along, but, um, those stories aren't normally told. Um, it's not the, you know, it's those of us doing research, it's our job. So we're writing because we have to, um, collecting data and writing journal articles and book chapters and all that kind of stuff. That wasn't the case with this book. It was the folks who um, are busy grinding, right? Trying to figure out, hitting right. lots of walls. Um, it's not easy. It's not easy to do that, to do that work, right? To implement Title V, Title III. It's, it's hard to write the grants, but implementing them is even harder. It's a, it's a long, long five-year journey to try to even to do that work. So, so yeah, yeah so thank and, you. 
Mm-hmm. I I want to go back to something that you said earlier about like the HSI designation, you know, what sort of like this idea that one day you wake up and you could be <laughs> at working at HSI. <laughs> and like, I'm, I'm really witnessing that right now at my current institution, right? And so to me, the stories that were collected for this book um, from the told from the practitioner perspective is like really being reflected in what I'm seeing at my current institution, where it's just like, okay, these are the people that are taking up the work of applying for grants and implementing the grants. Maybe they don't have all the support that, you know, would be nice to have for taking up such a large endeavor, but it's, it's just like, again, this reminder of why it's important to have this collective understanding of, what it means to be at an HSI and to build that so that this work doesn't only fall on them um, because they're, like you said, it's in their day-to-day and they do it because this is the work that they love, but we also need to make sure that it's a collective work and not just let, you know, let the HSI grant coordinator deal with it like no it's got to be a a whole university or whole campus um, endeavor absolutely a whole HSI needs to come into consciousness everybody all right and it's I mean even hopefully I I have all the like uh, projects I have for like okay I hope somebody writes about this one day like even thinking about the role of like um your, like the classified staff like the grounds folks the the people who right. you know take out our trash people have told me students have told me those people are more meaningful in their lives than anybody else on campus right like mm-hmm. the woman who cleans my dorm room is talks to me in Spanish and she makes me feel at home right like students have told me those kind of things right it's like everybody, everybody comes into play at the HSI. Um, but we do, we spend a lot of time elevating like administrators and, you know, the, the few folks doing the HSI work, but it is, it's everybody. It can, it can be a collective if we, if we think about it like that. So, so yeah, let's talk a little bit about Northern Arizona university since you brought it up. I wanted to talk about (laughs) it anyways. Um, congratulations on, on your new position. I know this is your first year as an assistant professor, which is amazing. Um, and they are actively thinking about serving this, which is really cool all the way up to, you know, president's office. I know, mm-hmm. um, what can you tell us about NAU and serving this and what excites you about your new position and, and the idea that there can be intersection between your research and your practice, your day-to-day practices? Yeah. Um, it's been really cool actually to see it from this side um and but at the same time a little bit frustrating because of the 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 way that right now for example there's a committee of individuals that basically have volunteered to take up the work of like applying for a title five grant and you know doing research to start to understand like what are latino students need and like how can we better serve them and it's those those folks that have been doing this work are amazing and i have really come to like develop strong connections, strong relationships with them. But the reason why it's frustrating is because it's like in in addition to their work. And um, I just see that as 
maybe they, and this is, this is something that is across all HSIs, right? Where it's seen as like committee work is part of service, but really this is, especially at a new HSI at like NAU, it's something that needs to be more embedded in the structures. Like there has to be more support, monetary. Um, and I'm sure that there are elements of that, but maybe I'm just unaware of. Um, but I just wish that hopefully over time and as we start to expand about how we think about being a new HSI at NAU, then maybe there can be more monetary support for doing this work. Um, and not just waiting to see if we get a grant, then we can pay someone to do it. Like, no, it should, it should come first. <laughs> just say like, we want you to do this work. Um, and so here's, here's money <laughs> to do it. But the people that are doing this work, as far as the faculty, I'm seeing so many really cool connections with their scholarship, even though many of them are not education scholars, like they're not higher ed scholars. Um, like they come from different disciplines, they come from different departments, but they're using that knowledge of their area of expertise and like trying to build something in terms of the HSI identity and designation. And I'm like, that's really cool to see because I'm immersed, I'm surrounded by mostly ed, ed folks. And we all know what an HSI is, or for the most part, like we, we talk about it in certain terms. And for a lot of the people in, in these like committee settings, they didn't really know what an HSI was, but they just knew that they were going to like, they wanted to transform the university in some way. And they did have the support of the new president. So that has been uh, really cool to see as well. Um, but I do get, you know, even though I said it, I want people to be com compensated for their time. I want it to be more embedded into the structures. I do get excited because I'm seeing like how my expertise <laughs> and my knowledge uh, around HSIs is seen as really valued. And so they call on me a lot. And I, I feel like I'm still so new, but um, they call on me a lot to just like ask me what I think or when I attend like some of the committee meetings, they're like, yeah, can I, can I pick your brain about something? And I'm like, yes, please, <laughs> because it does align my research and my service and and even in to an extent like my teaching. So um, the fact that there is such a emphasis right now at NAU on the HSI designation and, and moving forward, how we advance servingness, but how there's alignment with that mission and like my own agenda, it's something that I, I hoped I would have in a faculty position, but I didn't expect it to be so fulfilling in the way that it has been. And so that's been really cool for me. Like I get to nerd out every day, pretty much. Oh, that's making me so jealous. I'm like, oh, <laughs> that's probably so cool. Cause you know, I'm at like the whitest institution ever uh, <laughs> doing, doing this work. And it's like, yeah, it doesn't align, right. The, the actual things going on, on the campus and like how cool to be at a campus that is like 
this is your research, right? This is your area. And they see that and they, they value you for that. That's awesome. And I love it. And I'm glad to hear that it's, it's going really well. And also so cool that like HSI is, is coming up across campus that that's part of this, right? What we've been talking about is like, how does the entire campus get behind this? The engineers should be servers, right? The, the chemists should be servers, right? The, everybody across the campus should be, should be thinking about how, how are we going to become good, good servers, right? How are we going to do this servingness stuff? So that's really cool. Um, I always like to ask the question uh, to people who are doing HSI research, who their HSI uh, scholar heroes, or even who the people they're watching come up, who we don't maybe necessarily know about yet because they're they're still coming up. So who are you watching? Who are your your the the folks you're watching whose work is starting to have a real impact on on HSIs and whose work are you drawing on? Um, tell us. Yeah. Well, I I do have to say, I know in every episode, you're like, this is not a thirst trap, but um, because you and um, Dr. Marcella Cuellar are like my scholar madrinas, I feel like I, I really respect and love the work that you all do. So you're my HSI scholar heroes and madrinas. (laughs) Um, Yes. (laughs) And and I would also include you know, Anne-Marie Nunez, uh, Aaron Doran, right? Like the people that I learned from at UTSA uh, about HSIs and like, we've never collaborated, but I just always valued and respected and like leaned on work from the people that were at UTSA when I was there, because it, like I said earlier, put, gave me the language to, to talk about what I experienced and changes that I wanted to see going forward at HSIs. Um, But as far as emerging scholars, I have to shout out my hermana and my collaborator, Dr. Stephanie Aguilar-Smith. And it's not just because she's my friend that I want to shout her out, but um, we've been talking a lot about her work and we're working on a collaboration together. And because at NAU, we're currently applying for a Title V grant. I just keep telling her like how important her work is because of everything that comes up in conversations at NAU. I'm like, oh, well, Stephanie says this and it's important. It's like you need to make sure to keep an eye on her work because they want, they're asking questions at NAU for like help with applying for Title V grants. And like Stephanie is asking, answering those questions in her work. And I feel like the connections between what folks need to hear and what she's giving them is like so aligned. And I'm like, yes, I'm here for it. Absolutely. And she just is like knocking out publications like every other day. I just saw one today. I was like, all yeah. right, all right, I'm here for it. Um, but she is, she's, she's, she's going in in an in a angle that we, we need. Right. And, and I mean, she was, you know, season one, episode one, and people really were like, wow, uh, she gave us a lot to think about, right. Really critical things to think about, particularly around how the federal dollars are motivating people and, or, right. you know, reasons why people are even going for those. And are they the right reasons? Like what, what are people pursuing these dollars for? Um, right. Are you actually serving, right? The serving versus the dollar sign serving. Such an important question. 
mm-hmm. I look forward to seeing y'all's y'all's work um, coming out as well. So final question, everybody's got to answer the final question. <laughs> How do you summarize the question? ¿Qué pasa? HSI? How do you respond to that? So <laughs> ¿Qué pasa? HSIs? I want to know what are you doing to retain racially minoritized faculty? So as we talk about like, let's diversify the faculty, let's get them hired, but not just let them or expect them and us, because I'm part of them, to carry the weight of servingness or diversity work. Um, and if you want us to do that labor, then just pay us what we're worth. Um, and I know I've been talking about like faculty hiring and faculty diversity, but also just make sure that we're hiring faculty that have this consciousness that um, are equity minded and aren't going to continue to perpetuate some of the issues that we see in the academy, but are going to actually do something to transform it. So I, I hope that HSIs can be cognizant of that going forward, like pay us what we're worth, but also hire people that are going to make change and, and elevate the consciousness at an HSI. Word, word, word. I co-sign all of that. (laughs) (laughs) That is what's up. Listen and learn, HSIs. You heard it right here. (laughs) Thank you for being a guest today. I really have enjoyed this conversation and uh, look forward to sharing it with the listeners.